Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast, brought to you by City Current and powered by Lipscomb and Pitts Insurance. This show shares personal stories and insight from those who are giving back and making a difference so we can learn and do the same. We cover life lessons, business advice, passion, and purpose. Now here's our host, Jeremy Park. Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Park. We have a fun treat. He flew in today to speak at our City Current events, so we get him literally right off the plane, so from the airport straight here, uh, which is awesome. So we have Seth Madison. He's an internationally renowned expert and author on workforce trends, generational dynamics, and business strategy. He's co-founder and chief movement officer for Illuminate Labs. His book is The War at Work. We'll talk all about that. But Seth, for starters, welcome to Memphis. How was your flight? How are you doing? Jeremy, thanks for having me. Grateful to be here. Uh, you could have maybe had it be a little bit warmer, but oh, that's, that's fine. That's I true. came in from Phoenix, <laughs> so I'm adjusting. We're in here in the studio. I got my jacket on still, but I'm grateful to be here and uh, looking forward to a couple of days in town. So it's going to be fun. Let's start, though, with a little bit of your backstory. Um, talk about where you grew up, and let's kind of dive in, and we'll, we'll get to Hollywood and everything in between, but oh, talk geez. about where you grew up. So I grew up on a fourth-generation farm in southern Minnesota. So grew up working alongside my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather. Really unique opportunity, 100-year-old farm. People often ask me, you know, what what was that like to grow up in that environment? Because we've sort of migrated outside of our rural communities into more urban areas and so we've sort of lost touch to that and I I tell people all the time particularly from a multi-generational farm standpoint is these three dudes they were very much particularly my great-grandfather he was the type of man that when he when he shook your hand what he was really doing when he was greeting you was he was he was secretly checking for calluses on you wanted to see if you were working you want to see if you were a worker right and that was like his big mo and Honestly, I think about that a lot as I as we're actually sitting here doing the podcast right now, and I'm looking at my pink fleshy hands. <laughs> well, I'm wondering, do calluses like for yeah. playing a musical instrument? Does that Correct. count? <laughs> Correct. You know, it's like just working out, going to the gym, and playing the guitar. Does that count? That would not have counted in his eyes. Um, but that was that was that was the the upbringing and sort of the genesis of uh, of my background. Went to school, state school in Wisconsin. Lived in Minneapolis, and then. Chased uh, the my now wife. We've been together for ten years. Out to California. She was in broadcasting, and we have been Southern California based, and and now in the desert in Arizona in Scottsdale for the last six months. And uh, it's good. It's a good place for us to be to grow the business and and God willing raise a family. Absolutely. So let's go back to um, on your end with your parents and in fourth generation. Was there a pretty rigid structure in terms of when you had to wake up and go work on the farm was it like, like how was that structure yeah. in terms of your childhood and and growing up I'll tell you what stands out to me the most as it sort of relates to to structure so it was a a dairy farm uh, we also grew corn and soybeans but the thing about a a dairy operation is that whether it's raining snowing sleeting whether you're sick as a dog there is no option about not getting out of bed right the cows have to be milked so every morning at 6 a.m. and every night at 5 or 5.30, it's like it just was. And and not that, you know, I was always having to do that work because I was pretty little. But what I was seeing was the archetype yep. of my father and my grandfather and great-grandfather in that schedule and in that routine, particularly with my father of just – 
there was no option to not go. There wasn't such a thing as, as a sick day. You just learned to power through. And it really sort of led me to this ethos of, of grit and grittiness, which is celebrated and talked about a lot today. Yeah. I didn't. Especially here in Memphis, grit and grind is like our, our theme. Is that the, city. the theme? It is. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's very quintessential of just, you know, it wasn't celebrated at that time. I just was seeing it play out in real life. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely stayed with me today. Um, not that the work I do is can even compare in terms of just the toughness that was required to power through all of that. Um, but in in building businesses and yep. being an entrepreneur and 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 navigating the ups and downs, we've been doing this work, which we'll get into, you know, for the past decade now, surviving ten years on our own. Um, the grittiness has served me well. For yeah. Sure. Before we dive in even further, one last one is give us one either a family tradition or something that when you look back, especially on those years, what stands out as kind of a fun memory or something that you even take with you is, you know, with your family today. You know what I think. It's it's less a family tradition and more just about the growing up close to the earth, growing up on a, in a farming community. Um, you're you're very close to you know the theme of just the seasons of life, right? And so there are there's a season for planting and there's a season for harvesting, and uh, you 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 learn very quickly you can't just show up in the fall with your hands out if you didn't put the seeds in the ground in the spring. And you just, it just sort of gets baked into who you are of when winter thaws, it's like you, you rest and you recharge. So there's a season, yeah, the season of winter, which you need to prepare for in the spring, you show up and you go to work and there isn't an option and you plant and you plant diligently and faithfully. And there's this huge element. And I think it's, I think it's tremendously important for all the entrepreneurs, you know, business executive leaders, there's value in this too. But for the entrepreneurs that are listening, one of the, the most important lessons that comes out of this theme of planting in the spring and staying close to the earth is you have to have this faithfulness and this willingness to relinquish control of the outcome. You have no control over how those crops are going to show up in the fall. All you can do is diligently plant, tend, you know, pull the weeds, yeah. and then you have to relinquish the outcome. And that's really difficult for a lot of us as entrepreneurs. It's like we want to force, you know, it's yeah. like... Well, especially uh, control freaks too. Control, control freaks <laughs> on top of it, right? Yeah. Of like, you cannot control the outcome and you also have to surrender to the divine timing of it all. So I, that that was another. It's been a consistent theme in my life, not only from growing up on the farm, but in everything that I've wanted. I'm sure there's a, a number of entrepreneurs right now that are hustling and planting, and they're saying, you know, Seth, I've been tending to my crop for a long time. Yeah. When it, when is it going to be time to harvest? Because we want it right now, and uh, you got to surrender to the divine timing of all, and and just remain faithful. Control what you can control, and know that it will come in, and then learn how to uh, receive that harvest. So that on the flip side of that is, for a lot of us, we're we're really good at showing up for other people, but we're not so good at receiving. And there's just as much. Um, methodology and mindfulness and faithfulness that goes into receiving abundantly and being open to that on the flip side. And so that whole, you know, navigating the seasons of life, um, 
while not necessarily a family tradition, was just sort of deeply rooted in in our philosophy of life that served me pretty well. What's interesting is just even we live in such a fast-paced world, and when you hear kind of the season of even just being able to to relax and and kind of pull away and recharge, you know, I've got to believe that for many of us who struggle with that, and that self-admittedly even on my end, if you don't have that, you do burn out. 100%. And so even even being mindful of the seasons and saying, okay, at some point I do have to give myself a chance to recharge if I'm going to be more successful down the road. You've you, you got to be thinking long game yeah. here. And so, again, that theme of you know diligently going to work and being gritty and grinding away, it's not sustainable. For most of us, not only not sustainable from a from a mental well being, from a physical standpoint, but also from a relationship standpoint. There's a lot of different factors that we can look at of how do we define success as a society yeah. and as business leaders and communities. But for us as individuals, is just being really intentional. Of I don't have to buy into or inherit inherent inherit everyone else's view of what is success what is success for you success for you could be you know what if i could make whatever that number is it's irrelevant it doesn't have to be seven figures because that that's what i see on instagram and my feed is the seven secrets to the seven figure year that that might not be what you want and if you can get yourself in a place where you, you can confidently own that and say you know what if i could make $75,000, $75,000, which we know from the research that the happiness quotient above seventy dollars to $80,000 is very small in route to a million dollars. Interesting. The people who make $75,000 a year collectively in their families are, are not ex- – the people who make a million are not exponentially right, more right. happy right. and fulfilled than those individuals. But yet when we – and we're caught up in a world of social media and Instagram in particular, right, is feeding us a barrage of images that I need more. And if I do more, I can then be and feel more successful. I will feel fulfilled. Right. And, and it's a lie. But the only way you can sort of get outside of that trap is to take a step back and be able to check in with yourself, do the inner work to know thyself above all else and decide and determine what success is going to mean for you. And I, I don't know that we're taught that in our educational systems right. and in business school for entrepreneurs of saying on the journey of building what you're building, how, how do you develop the practices to be able to tap into your own inner wisdom and knowing to design a life that is right for you, whatever that might be. Do it for yourself. Yeah. So I, we got, I got off on a little bit of a tangent there. I don't even yeah, know no, that's, exactly that's, this what is all te- good what, stuff. What this is, up, but hey, this is perfect. I'm thinking about your entrepreneurs that are, are listening. Well, but I think these the are things that we all this. struggle with. And, and whether it's as an entrepreneur or as an executive or whatever it is, Um, I think multitasking is the new norm and we all struggle with, okay, we get burned out. And so just being cognizant to to your point about who we are and what we want and what our view of success is. And I think we also do get caught in that trap where, especially with social media and Instagram, you see the million dollar homes, the million dollar cars, the million dollar private jets, I mean, all these things. And it's like, I have to have that to be happy. And um, Tom Shadyak says it all the time too. To get that. Yeah. Is that, uh, you know, ultimately... 
um, nature mm-hmm. only takes what it needs to mm-hmm. grow and thrive. So yes. a tree only takes the amount of water and sunlight, and then it pushes the rest so that the rest of the world can enjoy it. And the only thing that continues to take and take and take and take and take is cancer. And so that's the part where you have to kind of self-evaluate and say, okay, what is enough for you and what do you enjoy? And it may be bikes or we we're talking about watches before, but whatever it is, ultimately you have your piece of happiness but then the rest of it is is use it to help others, use it to do other things, but but ultimately be happy and don't kill yourself in the process. Okay, but you bring up a really good point, Jeremy, and I think for this, I immediately think of all the executives and entrepreneurs that are building their businesses. But you know that idea of conti- what is it that continuously grows and consumes its host is cancer, right? That continuous growth equals cancer, which eventually kills the host. In our current, I mean, we open up a big conversation about just our current model of capitalism and how most of our businesses, right? I I do about 75 live events every single year. Half are with individual uh, companies. Half are either associations or community events like this. Every single one of them has a theme of growth, continuous growth. We want more growth. We grew at 8% this year. We want to grow at 12% next year. And having the opportunity just to take a step back and to say, how much is enough? Yeah. And what are the metrics we are using to measure success? Right. If our only metrics, right? So if you're an executive, if you're a business owner and you're listening to this and you say, if I were to ask you, how do you determine whether or not last year was successful or not? And we say, well, it was based on revenue and growth. In my opinion, that is going back to that idea of we've become wealthy in some really poor ways. What would be some additional KPIs that we could use to determine whether or not my business, my organization in this community has been successful? What might be some benchmarks? Maybe I factor in there where employee engagement is, where employee happiness. Maybe it'd be the level of can we measure growth and development opportunities that we created for our people? Can we measure that in community impact and how much we were? Is that a line item that we point to that is not a subset underneath growth and revenue, but sits equally on that plane? Because when we somehow when we get into the business realm, we, we keep it completely separate to this theory that we all know of what is cancer. Yeah. Cancer ultimately kills the host. And I think we're beyond a reasonable doubt that if we stay on our current trajectory, you know, we will deplete the resources of this earth. It's just easy to point at everyone else and to say, that's a big problem. Someone else will solve right. that. That's happening at an international level. I'm just here running my little business in my little community. That may be true, but if everyone takes the ownership of saying, how do I lead and build a company that operates with principles that are sustainable, that allow us to grow in a way that feels like it's enough but supportive, and what exactly is that number? I'm not here to tell people what that number is, but I see myself as a facilitator of transformation to start to bring some of these beautiful conversations to the table and just say we've sort of inherited a paradigm about what leadership and work and commerce and capitalism is supposed to look like and mean and we don't have to it doesn't mean that it's all bad it doesn't mean that we blow it all up and we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. it's just saying we get to actually decide what we want the new era the next new iteration the new paradigm yeah. of business and leadership to be about and that's what gets me 
really excited and excited to spend time with people such as yourself that are making such an impact in the communities that you're operating in like you are. Well, and, and I greatly appreciate it. And I'll tell you what's interesting about everything you're talking about, not just from a business lens, but from a nonprofit lens. So you're seeing these questions now asked by nonprofits and funders and philanthropists alike, and it's coming out of the Robin Hood Foundation and even organizations like Slingshot Memphis here, where to your point, as an organization, especially a nonprofit, you're kind of pushed to do more, right, to serve more. And so all of a sudden you come out and you say, well, we served 100,000 people. Okay, well, that's great. Maybe you're, maybe you're serving them, but you only serve them one meal mm-hmm. per person for yeah. the year, right? Sure. So you've had one meal for 100,000 people, so you've technically served 100,000 people. Mm-hmm. But you compare that to an organization that literally is helping 100,000 people or, or served 100,000 meals, we'll say, but it was you know five meals a day or three meals a day to the individual. So the point is, um, and I'm getting my numbers wrong, but you get the point. Sure. The point is, yeah. is yeah. It's, it's not just about numbers and impact and growth over there as it is how effective are you really at creating change and not getting tripped up by the big numbers and having constant growth over there versus yeah. impacting a life yeah. and really taking a holistic approach and saying, okay, Seth, you're coming in. I got to feed you three times a day to, to get you know where you need to be. I've got to make sure and tutor you and get you your GED and help you with work-life skills and all those kind of things so that ultimately you're equipped for success and it's not a silver bullet approach. And I think- sure. You know, kind of back to the point is you're seeing even that sort of mindset saying we, we're not asking the right questions. We've got to ask yes. more detailed questions. We've got to uh, really look at the right grade, the right things so that we even know that the numbers we're getting are the right numbers based on what we're trying to accomplish. So I think the point is these conversations are having not just in business, but in community as well. They, they, they are to do what you just described right there when you that when that was starting to come to light in my mind, what immediately jumped up was. In order to do any of those things, it requires leaders who operate from a position of humility, though. Because to be able to say what we have been doing, even if technically it's it's been... And in some cases, funding success, for millions of dollars might not have worked. Exactly. Yeah. And to say, okay, is there a better way? Is there right. a new way? Do we have all of the answers? That takes a heart posture of humility. And especially if people's identities have gotten wrapped up in what they do and in those organizations, to question the organization is then to essentially question them as individual leaders and their identity. And if you can separate those two and operate from a place of and go back to why are we doing this and who are we doing this for and step into that mindset of a servant leader – it allows you to then ask those questions and be open to new and different ways of approaching it. Yeah, but. yeah, that's a good tangent. Let's go back. <laughs> yeah, so so talk about let's, let's rewind yeah. here now. But I mean, all that I think is is context for actually what you're doing. So I mean, Absolutely. I think it's pretty easy for listeners to get a feel for. Okay, you know, I, I see where Seth's heart is and where he's coming from, and obviously where you're passionate about. But ultimately, these are the very things that you're looking to tackle. Is how do you yeah. create the paradigm shifts? How do you create transformation? How do you open people's eyes and say? Are we asking the right questions? Are we just getting caught up in the numbers games? So, so talk about Luminate Labs. I mean, give us an idea yeah. of what you do. So I'll, I'll, let's go back 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, I find myself sitting in an empty parking lot at like 6.30 in the morning. And my heart is absolutely racing. Because I'm about to walk into a clinic that... Uh, takes blood platelet donations and my heart is racing because I have this is right at the turn of 2008 the great recession is in full effect 
and I have convinced two best-selling authors on the subject of generational shifts, generational dynamics, to essentially take me on their platform and their team, which they agreed to, but unfortunately did not have the resources to be able to really compensate me. And so I was leaving the management consulting realm, full-time paycheck world that I had been in, and was proceeding with faith. And in hopes of being able to do this work of being an author and a speaker, but there was no money, there was no income. And so to supplement this, I started to donate blood platelets. But somewhere along that journey of donating, someone planted the thought worm in my mind that, you know, when you go in, they check your blood pressure. And if for some reason your blood pressure is a little high, your heart rate is a little high that day, you can be turned away. And that morning when I'm, I'm sitting in my car, this is the spring of 2009, early in the morning, I know that I don't have enough money to fill my car up with gas to get back home. So I have to be able to donate. But the thought worm has crept into my mind that if my heart rate is a little elevated, I'm not going to be able to. And I walk in. And uh, as I walk in and the door swings shut behind me, I can just feel my heart rate already going up trying to calm it down. I slide my arm into that blood pressure sleeve, you know, that we've all had our arms in. And as it starts to tighten up around my arm, my heart rate is jacked. And of course I get denied. And I would continue to get denied for the next three weeks. I I, I could not get this under control. And after the last time, the third week, I, as I'm pulling my arm out of that sleeve, and I'm trying to hide my face and the tears that are running down my eyes from the nurse. I walk out to my car. And I, as I get in my car, I, I really learned that first lesson we talked about in the beginning, which was the need to surrender to divine timing. Because I had been in this place of, I wanted this thing to happen so bad, to get to break in, to be able to do this work, to teach, to share. And it felt like it was slipping away. And I, despite how bad I wanted it, I couldn't control the timing of it. And it was in that moment that I had to just sort of surrender and say, you know what, this is outside of my control. And if it is to be, it will be. And fortunately, enough things came together to see me through that moment. But all of my work to this day now where we've been fortunate coming out of that and we're on a 10-year run now of doing 70, 80 plus events. We've got to travel all over the world. I never forget how that felt in that moment and what was at stake in order to get a shot into this game. We were able to go on a run of almost five years with these two authors. Their names were David Stillman and Lynn Lancaster. They wrote a bestseller back in 2002 called When Generations Collide. They were one of the first sort of thought leaders in the early 90s around the subject. I got to help them in the writing of their second book called The M Factor, how the millennial generation was going to rock the workplace. And today we hear about, you know, millennials all the time through every single outlet. But back in 07, 08, 09, partially we weren't inundated with all of our new forms of technology and communication. But it was an early topic. And I got really lucky in a, that I caught the early wave of that subject. And I had an opportunity to learn the craft of working with a client, speaking, moving an audience through content from two world-class speakers. 
Um, David was a Gen Xer. Lynn was a baby boomer, so I got great generational perspective. They sold that business after our f- after four years, and when they did, it just it gave me a really beautiful opportunity to pivot my uh-huh. research and my brand. I wanted to talk about more than just generations, and I pivoted and and refocused all of our energy and efforts under more of this theme of the future of work. And and fortunately, we had enough momentum in the industry and with clients that when we pivoted and went on our own, we had enough people who were basically like, you know what, we'll give you a shot with the new content and sort of your new research that you're putting out there. We probably wouldn't have gotten two or three shots, but fortunately, it hit and it worked. And... Um, And we've spent the last five years expanding that research. Obviously, that theme of the future of work is very broad. Yeah. Well, it's constantly changing, too. And it's constantly changing. And I've had to continuously check in with myself on just, you know, the beauty of it is that it it is broad. And there's a lot of great things to talk about. The, The challenge of it is it is so broad. You can wake up and every day can be like, there's a lot of shiny objects Right. That you can talk under that theme. You know, are we talking about digital transformation? Are we talking about AI? Are we talking about machine learning? Are we, t- you know, fill in the blank go sure, down the right, line? Right. Where, look over here. Do some research on this. Do the all- desks that rise. Correct. And work. Yeah, everything. Yeah, you know, exactly. Work. You know, yeah. all of that. And so I have to, had to learn how to continually check in with myself of what do I think are the more compelling messages, the less the sort of unconventional topics and themes that aren't being talked about that are important and um, the first one that really bubbled up which is the basis and the foundation of our book The War at Work was we looked at the future through this lens of uh, these two dynamic forces that are battling it out which are hierarchies and networks so we sort of looked at the future through the lens of hierarchies and networks and essentially saying, as we're becoming more and more aware of it today, we're entering this era that you know, has been called the age of the networks. We're surrounded by a digital existence where you know, our phones, our technology, our education, everything around us, one big giant network. Everything's connected. Everything's connected. And we believe our workplaces and every right, but the challenge is is that as we move into that world, we are for most of us, most of us and most of the leadership that I get to work with on a daily basis did not come of age in that world. Almost everyone that I'm interacting with that's an executive or a leader came of age in a world where the structures and more importantly, the deeply embedded culture of hierarchy has been our reality. And these two worlds, this new emerging world of network and our existing traditional historical world of hierarchy, they're battling it out. It's like these two unseen forces and every company I go into, and this has been true now for over five years, we've vetted out this research and worked with clients from the Lockheed Martins of the world to the Microsofts to the small operators in transportation and manufacturing and hospitality. There is this undercurrent of those two forces that ultimately are dictating whether or not a a company and a, and a culture can evolve into this new networked world. Peter Senge out of MIT has some phenomenal research. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar, Peter has spent four, almost five decades researching and writing about systems thinking and organizational theory and behavior. And about a year and a half ago, he and I shared a stage with a, a one of the biggest financial service firms in the world. 
And Peter said to this room full of leaders, he said, organizational structures, i.e. hierarchy, are mirrored in our assessments, thinking, and mental models. They form the basis of our understanding and the very nature of our reality. Essentially what he was saying to this room was that the longer we had operated inside of these historical structures of hierarchy, the more it had not just slightly influenced how we think about leadership and work, but that what the science had shown was that it had literally rewired our brains Hmm. and that we then saw the world through this lens. We lived in that paradigm. And so, but we're unaware of it. When you're in a paradigm, you're, you're yeah. unconscious well, of it's, it. It was interesting, even when we were talking about the hierarchy, you've got obviously titles, you know, CEOs and those and power structure, and you have the military and there's the structure there. But even going back to our original conversation just about uh, you know, consuming and getting consumed with like money. Yes. There's a hierarchy even there in yes. terms of financial. It's absolutely. So absolutely. It, what's interesting is just when you're as you're talking, it's like you, you can easily see how the hierarchies play and would rewire our brain, but but play such a vital role even outside of the workplace. They do. And hierarchies influence all levels of society. Yeah. You know, from the highest levels of government, governmental structures, right? Hierarchy shows up in in religious structures, organizational structures, government structures, our nonprofit institutions. And it's not that there isn't necessarily anything inherently wrong in hierarchy. What what I've been working on our clients with and, and hope to introduce and just add a little insight with our time together is where does it serve us and where is it preventing us from truly leading, living, and operating in this new world that's operating in true networked form yeah. and allowing us to sort of set a new set of guiding principles because there's a whole set of values and beliefs that were deeply ingrained about what it means to be a leader in subtle ways that influence and shape how we then go back and guide our organizations, build our cultures, and ultimately define the future. I give people a really sort of, I don't know if it's simple, but I try to distill it down into kind of a tangible soundbite. We say hierarchies and networks. It's a little big and heady of like, well, what do we mean by that? Think about it like this. Hierarchy historically provided a lot of security, stability, and consistency, but very little freedom, right? So it was like we defined things. It was clear, consistent, tightly controlled, but there was very little freedom in that. With network, network provides lots of freedom, but with it comes ambiguity and uncertainty. It can be scary. That's it right. can be scary yeah. as things move and change very fast. Yep. And so what I, the question I pose to leaders to just sort of summarize and anchor it, because you can go deep, but just at a high level, is think about where does control, where do we need to control situations in the organization, and where does freedom need to live in the organization? Where can we breathe more freedom? And if I'm trying to breathe more freedom into the organization, what's going to be required? With great freedom comes great responsibility and ownership. So how do I embed some of those those core themes to allow us to sort of dissolve some of the unwritten rules that have come with old school sort of hierarchical ways yeah. of being but it's not even just like oh manufacturing old school you know hierarchy is old school there's plenty of new quote-unquote cool uh cutting-edge cultural organizations that have tons of hierarchy steeped in them we've seen it um and so this has been a big part of my work of 
defining the future in a way and bringing a conversation that's not being talked about that I believe will help facilitate a paradigm shift in the way in which leaders show up and the type of companies they build. Hey, Andrew Bartolotta here, producer of the Changemakers podcast powered by City Current. Did you know that City Current is a catalyst of over 100 partners joining forces and funds to power the good through events, media, and philanthropy? Here's how you too can join our efforts. Be sure to follow us on social media at City Current. Subscribe to our podcast and check out our positive media at citycurrent.com. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. What's amazing is you're talking a lot uh, and even carrying it forward a little bit. Uh, Joshua Cooper Ramo wrote The Seventh Sense, and he talks a lot about networks and you know, the real power of like the smart car is not necessarily one smart car. It's us being connected and them learning from each other across the network, right? Yes. But with the network, to your point, it becomes very scary. So his point, and he kind of predicted Brexit and a lot of the stuff that was going on and is going on, is the fact that – um, you, you get networked in, you love it, and all of a sudden the network opens up and you learn, but then all of a sudden it gets really scary, and so your natural instinct is to pull in, and yes. so you contract. And contract a hierarchy yep. oftentimes. Yep. It's this constant, exactly. right? Exactly. Back and forth. And again, that's where I say early in the research, I was sort of like, hierarchy is archaic, it's dead, it's bad, network is the future, network is going to consume hierarchy. And then after spending more time in the trenches, inside organizations and doing more of the research where we landed was that it's really a balancing act of both it's not about either blowing up there's a great book written by uh, the author Niall Ferguson it's called The Square and the Tower and and what Niall did is he gives us he, he basically this came out I believe a year ago the historical context historical sort of background of the battle between hierarchies and networks, giving like one of the first examples of it is the printing press and the Catholic Church, right? Because it was the printing press, what did it do? It created free access to essentially people's access to God, source, information to be able to read. So you could have a relationship outside of the church and the Catholic Church in that time wanting to you know, control. And so they're like first examples of, and, and how did that play out? And then all of these iterations yeah. over the decades and, and centuries since then. And this is just... And now it's playing out in the workplace. Playing out in the workplace. You mentioned Brexit, yeah. all levels of yeah. society. Yeah. And when we're aware of it again, the whole idea is once we become aware of it, then we can make intentional choices about how we're designing moving forward. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I don't come as the, the basher of hierarchy. Um, I'm sort of trying to, number one, raise awareness of the paradigm that we're in so that we can then make a new choice and shift into Well, and even to your point before about how some of the most cutting edge still have the hierarchy in place, right? So now it's a matter of like a consultant, any good consultant. It's not, hey, everything is good or bad. It is, wait a second, let's take the best of all the worlds and what's right for you in this situation. And also too, knowing that that situation evolves and changes. So you constantly have to have your pulse on it. You do. Give us one, uh, you know, obviously it's impossible, but give us one of your just favorite tips in general. It could be a question to ask. It sure. could be uh, getting a pulse on your company. It can be something specific. But what's what's just one kind of teaser tip? Well, I'll, I'll sort of summarize it of this. When, when we say sort of finding that balance between hierarchies and networks, how are companies doing that? And what does it mean for the individual? Because I'm always trying to anchor back to that too of like, Okay, what's the company versus the individual? So we identified five shifts that 
the best of the best organizations that recognized it and were bridging the gap were doing. And that breaks down like this. There's a technology shift that has to take place, which is the most recognizable and most implemented shift. People see network is happening. We're going to plug technology into unleash network-like behavior inside the organization. But then they usually stop. And then they wonder why it doesn't, we're not, it's not fully re- realized. It's like, brother, you're all still walking around with the same unwritten rules from the freaking hierarchy. But we have an iWatch on now. Exactly. <laughs> so there's a technology shift, a process shift, which is really where agile methodology and design thinking type concepts come into play. There's a, a skills shift that has to take place of what are the new sort of skills and competencies that leaders need to embrace that are, if, if you're no longer leading from the top of the hierarchy, but if you were to instead, say, lead from the center of the network, what does that look like? What are those new skills and competencies? There's an experience shift that takes place where most of, of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with the experience economy, employee experience, no longer just customer experience. How are we shaping and curating those? And then the fifth and final shift is what we call the inner shift the inner work and what I mean by this and this leads me full circle back to your question what's the one tip the first four technology process skills and experience those are all quote unquote what we would call the outer work it's the doing it's what most people think they get paid their salaries to be focused on and we spend about 90% of our time focused on the doing the working on the outer work of the business and we spend about 10% or less on this what we call inner work this is the being part here's what I've discovered 10 years of this work We're focusing on the wrong. We're fiddling at the edges to create true transformation. It is not about what the company is doing. It is about who the leaders are being. I cannot have a conversation. Like those of you that heard that will know what I'm talking about. It is not about what the company is doing. It is about who the leaders are being. True transformation has to start in that place. It starts with the leaders. It starts with a conversation about who are we being? Who must we become? And it requires this deep inner work. So if you go full circle back to the beginning of our conversation about how and where we're spending our time, and you ask the average leader today across industries, where in your day do you have time to do quote unquote inner work? And inner work can be defined in a lot of different ways. Meditation, mindfulness, prayer. It could be a walk in nature. Somewhere where you are unplugged from not only technology but the outside noise so that you can tap into your greatest source of wisdom, which resides inside of you. Right? You are a tuning fork to be able to access that, to be able to make really clear choices and decisions about who you are what you believe and what that vision is if if you don't start there all of the doing will never create the transformation that you really want one of my favorite quotes comes from Otto Scharmer out of MIT and he said before we can create an external shift in our organizations an internal transformation must first occur within but most of the time we get caught up and filled with anxiety of that If I'm doing inner work, if I did 20 minutes of meditation and 20 minutes of journaling, 
to identify some of these things so I could start to hear my own inner knowing, it couldn't possibly be work. In fact, the little voice in my head is screaming at me, Seth, that I've got to start answering emails or I'm going to fall behind. And you have to be able to quiet that noise and know that creating quantum change requires the being. It's like Yoda. There is no trying. There is only to do. Well, and I think, too, culture trumps uh, Trump strategy um, You know, every day of the week. And to your point, not just even knowing yourself and that being the true north, but also, too, to your point about the leadership. Uh, once again, I'm not going to do the story justice, but the point is uh, one of my friends was telling me how he went in and there was a problem. And, and ultimately, the, the person on the front lines took care of it and said, I don't even have to go further up the food chain. I know this is the right thing to do, and our company would want it to be done. And and it hit him, and he was sharing it with me because that was his point is that the there was no strategy necessarily there. It was just they knew the ethos of the company. The culture yes. was so strong yes. that it was the right thing to do, yes. and everybody had taken ownership of yes. it. And I think you know everything you're talking about, it's knowing yourself, but ultimately when you are leading a company, leading an organization, out there even just leading yourself, good attracts good. People notice and with that, you create a ripple effect that ultimately you couldn't put a strategy behind if you tried to. No. You, you just summarized basically our whole conversation with that one example and a couple of things. Number one, you said, he said, you know, I didn't have to run it up the food chain. I e what did up, up where? Yeah. Hierarchy, yeah. right? Yeah. Paradigm, mental yeah. model. Yeah. So you, you've just confirmed that. And he didn't have to because he understood it was baked into the culture. Now, here's the final closing point I want for leaders to take away from this because Again, you want to summarize it down, what the company does versus who the leaders are being. I get leaders all the time. I'm sure you hear this in the community too. Nonprofit, for-profit, doesn't matter. How do I get people who care about and are passionate about what we do? You can't make anyone care about what you do. All you can do is share what you care about. That's it. I can't make any of my audiences ultimately believe what I believe. As a leader, when it comes to culture, all you can do is share what you believe. And you will then attract people who, if they believe what you believe, or if they aspire to believe what you believe, they will come and be aligned to that. But what does that mean? That means as a leader, you have to have an amazing skill to be able to communicate in a clear and compelling way what you believe. Yeah. That's it. That's awesome. Well, this is one of those we could go on and on and on forever uh, and, and have you come back over and over. But let, let's let's do this. Let's kind of switch over. It's kind of our sure. rapid fire. Sure. Just short questions, short answers, and we'll wrap up. I don't know if, uh, I'll, have, I don't know if I'll have a good answer. Yeah, that's, no, that's all right. These are all fun I'm ones. I'm nervous now. These are, these are fun ones. These are easy. So okay. give us uh, a recent book you've read. A recent book I've seen. Oh, um, The Book of Freedom. Uh, the Book of Freedom by P- Paul Selleck. I, unbelievable. Transforming my life right now. There you go. Put that on your list. A recent movie or TV show? Uh, I just rewatched Band of Brothers on HBO. I'm a huge World War II fan and buff, and uh, I think that's one of my favorites, 10-part series. Watch it, please. Nice. It's great. Give us a favorite restaurant in uh, your hometown and where you are now. So, so Los Angeles, we just spent 10 years out there. One of my favorite restaurants. Uh, it's a little commercially, people might roll their eyes, but I really like it. It's called Catch in West Hollywood. 
phenomenal. Nice. Yeah. And then what about where you are now? Now we're in Scottsdale. Scottsdale yeah. There's a brand new restaurant that just opened up that's very similar called Ocean 44 uh, in downtown Scottsdale. And they just absolutely nailed it in terms of, you know how it's hard to get the ambiance right with like, Music that's not too loud, so you can still talk, but it's not dead. There's a good vibe. The food is phenomenal. They top to bottom got it right. Ocean Forty Four. Nice. There's a plug for free. I got no. I got <laughs> nothing coming out of it. Well, this that. is the this is the fun <laughs> stuff. Is just uh, it's easy chance to learn more about you and you know just what makes you tick, but also to some fun promo as well. Totally <laughs> for those who are traveling. Um, give us something you like to do to relax. Um, I mean, you mentioned meditate. Yeah. But- so I I. I ch- we travel a lot. I'm on the road a lot. And so, and that was part of our move from Los Angeles to Scottsdale was I wanted faster, quicker, easy access to nature um, to just sort of unplug. Uh, that's been a big theme, peace and ease for me. And so for my wife and I, we love to, to get outdoors, hike. And then I'm also uh, an athlete. And so, and my wife played college tennis. And so if anything that lets us compete, we're not playing a lot of tennis anymore because we're getting old, but we're playing more pickleball and uh, and paddle tennis, sort of like old old people tennis. Hey, it's still fun. It's still it's good fun. work out. Absolutely. Still fun. Um, give us something that you and your wife outside of the sports, what's something you like to do? I mean, you mentioned nature, obviously, and sports, yeah. but w- yeah. like a place to go and visit or yeah. where, where do you like to go? We, we, we love to travel together and we, we travel well together. That was one of the things that – fell in love with her the most early on was she was a no frills no nonsense easy traveler so you guys could get along doing like the great race and all those kind of things together you know what? my talk. wife and i would probably like she would kill me we honestly we talk about that all why the time why are you doing that now listen i would probably have to default to her making you know yes yes dear right that, that's a that's a big theme in our house ha- i would have happy, to do the same happy happy wife happy life right. I'm, a, I'm a big believer in that but yes we talk about that amazing race type teamwork stuff all the time <laughs> we'd, be good. we'd be good at that. <laughs> what, uh, give us, a, you mentioned kind of a lot of things that you follow, but give us one other, whether it's website, uh, a person, who, who else do you like to follow on your so, end that inspires you? Yeah, I, um, I'm a big fan of Aubrey Marcus. He's got a, he's based in Austin. Um, he's got a book called Own the Day. He built a, a big nutrition, health and wellness sort of human optimization company called Onnit. Uh, Alpha Brain was their first product that Joe Rogan really pushed a number of years ago and has, has just turned this thing into a monster. But he, what I respect about him is he has, um, he, he, he may have some, some unconventional views on, on business and spirituality, and, but he's found a way to thread the needle of talking about sort of his, how he sees the world in a really vulnerable and authentic way. Um, that is inspiring and empowering to me. And so that, that would be someone that I, I his, his pod, I mean, I think he's one of the top four or five podcasters in the world. Um, so I'm a big Aubrey fan. What's a quote, a phrase, a saying, what's something that inspires you? I'm, I'm so glad. I'm, about yeah. saying, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing so you already glad. looking at your, uh... so um, <laughs> y- y- y'all can't see this cause you're listening, but I am opening. I had, a, I had my journal out. This is a leather bound journal. I, I, I bring my journal everywhere I go, every meeting. This one was given to me about two, from my wife on my uh, 37th birthday. But there's a quote on the inside. That's why I was excited. Yeah. This is not written down. This is actually imprinted in the journal. And it's actually my favorite quote. And it says, uh, sometimes it takes a long time to sound like yourself. Miles Davis. And I don't know if there's a quote that rings more true for me in sort of my evolution and continued evolution 
as to the work that I'm trying to do. Sometimes it takes a long time to sound like yourself. When we first start out, and I'm sure some of your listeners can relate to this, we emulate those that we look up to. And we are grappling with and trying to find our most authentic voice and gifts. And if you can keep hammering away on it, right, the people who ultimately find and discover it and then are brave enough to reveal it, in whatever that is, whatever your art is, those are the people that we celebrate. And it is my continual journey to keep trying to find and sound more like myself. The interesting thing is I usually, the last question I ask, which I'll still ask this, but you basically just answered is, you know, you're working every day to create your legacy. What do you hope your legacy is? And yeah. so I think you, you kind of hit it right there, but what is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, my, from, from my legacy is to, is to essentially answer three really important questions, to know who I am, to know what I am, and to know exactly how I serve, to leave... Uh, an institution and a platform that continues to help people find their way back home to those answers long after I'm gone. And uh, we found an outlet and a, and, a, and a way in which to do this work right now across a couple of different sources and with a couple of different groups that we try to serve well. Um, but thinking in terms of generational legacy and not momentary likes in a world that is obsessed and consumed by social media and Instagram is sort of my North Star every single day of am I working on something that's leading towards generational legacy or is this for a momentary like? And that's been a pretty good guidepost for the work that we try to do. Absolutely. Last question is always the easiest one is just where do we go to learn more, stay in touch? So social media website, where would you direct us? I'm easy to find. Everything is either sethmadison.com or at sethmadison. That handle is uh, our handle for LinkedIn, for Instagram, for Facebook. Um, Facebook, we've sort of shut down. That's not a plug or a detraction. Just we're most active on probably Instagram and, and LinkedIn at Seth Madison. And I look forward to connecting and 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 following and joining the conversation. And it goes back to what we said before. If if you believe what we believe, I think there's there's some really important work which I believe what you believe, and I think that's why we're here together. Uh, to do this work here in Memphis. I agree 100%. Well, Seth, absolute pleasure having you on the podcast and uh, greatly appreciate it. So hope everyone enjoys it and follow the conversation online and go to sethmadison.com and obviously at Seth Madison. So Seth, thanks for all you do for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Thank you for listening to the Changemakers podcast produced by City Current and powered by Lipscomb and Pitts Insurance. To learn more about our guests and to share your stories of others leading by example, visit us online at citycurrent.com. Connect with us online using at citycurrent or follow the conversation using the hashtag changemakers. Now think big, start small, and act now. Be a changemaker. 